Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before we get started with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. Up first this week, we have our monthly roundup of prison disturbances as compiled by Perilous Chronicle. On January 31st, a disturbance involving at least 10 prisoners and eight corrections officers broke out in a mess hall of the Five Points Correctional Facility in New York. After prisoners refused orders from guards, guards escalated the conflict with physical violence, which led to several prisoners joining in the melee. The conflict ended when guards deployed pepper spray, subduing and handcuffing the defiant prisoners, seven of whom were transferred to other facilities pending charges, and three of whom were transferred to segregation cells within five points. An unknown number of prisoners are on hunger strike at the Alexander Correctional Institution in North Carolina in response to a variety of issues including lack of basic sanitation, delay of mail, retaliation for filing grievances, and restriction of recreation time. According to the North Carolina Department of Public Safety, there are only two prisoners on strike and they are each on individual strikes. Friends and family members of those in prison, as well as prisoners themselves, say the number of strikers is much higher. They say that the hunger strike began at the beginning of the month and that at least some prisoners are still on strike. On Wednesday, February 2nd, a disturbance was reported at North Central Unit Prison in Calico Rock, Arkansas. In a press release by the Department of Corrections, the disturbance started because the prisoners, quote, were not complying with staff instructions, end quote. The release said 18 prisoners participated in three different barracks. Prison staff allegedly responded with pepper spray. Two prisoners went to the hospital with lacerations and were released the following day. More details of what caused the disturbance are unknown. On February 3rd, four prisoners escaped from a county jail in McCurtain County, Oklahoma. Authorities allege that a contractor, who is also the brother of one of the escaped detainees, had left a pair of pliers in the ceiling of the shower to aid the escape. Authorities also allege that a prison guard aided in their escape. All four escapees, as well as the guard and the brother, were later arrested. The last escapee was arrested nearly two weeks after the escape in Sherman, Texas, over 100 miles away. Three detainees escaped from the Sullivan County Jail in Tennessee on February 4th by crawling out of the facility's ventilation ducts and up to the roof. One was recaptured one week later, and the other two died during their time on the land. Their cause of death has not yet been explained publicly. According to the sheriff, the escape was the result of a combination of facility failure and human errors. The facility is designed to hold 619 detainees and currently has a population of 925. The design of the facility and overcrowding sure works against us, the sheriff said. On February 14th, at least eight prisoners took over the third floor of the Stevens Correctional Center in Welch, West Virginia. According to official reports, the incident began as a fight between prisoners, but quickly escalated into an uprising with prisoners damaging appliances and other prison infrastructure within their unit. The uprising lasted several hours, 
and ended in the early morning of February 15th when local law enforcement from multiple jurisdictions stormed the unit. At least 42 ICE detainees housed in the Orange County Jail in New York began a hunger strike on February 16th in response to racist and aggressive treatment by guards and low-quality food. Quote, This is something that's been bubbling up for a very long time over a whole host of issues, said Perry McAnick, a lawyer for the Legal Aid Society. Quote, The most immediate issue is treatment by the guards, who are saying racist things and have been abusive and aggressive. It's also hard for people to access a doctor there. Advocates say jail officials retaliated against strikers by transferring some of them to segregation, taking away tablets, and reducing food portions. The strike ended on February 20th after negotiations with ICE. Around February 19th, two juveniles incarcerated at the Acadiana Center for Youth in St. Martinville, Louisiana, escaped the facility. The recent escape is another in a string of escapes and other incidents that have taken place in facilities managed by the Louisiana Office of Juvenile Justice recently. According to the sheriff, the teens were arrested ten and a half hours later at a truck stop five miles from the facility. Three female detainees incarcerated at the Johnson City Detention Facility in Tennessee walked away from work detail on February 22nd. Later that day, a man was arrested for allegedly picking the trio up and driving them to an undisclosed location. At this time, the three have not yet been arrested. You can find out more at perilouschronicle.com. Last week, IDOC Watch shared the following urgent phone zap. Quote, Abu Fahim Shabazz, state name Jerry Smith, numbered 129911, is facing severe retaliation for his work defending prisoners' rights and speaking out against the corruption and brutality of the staff and administration at Westville CF. Fahim has been a leader of political education study groups for the past two years and has made numerous reports about the conditions at Westville CF since arriving there in 2019. He has been repeatedly transferred from unit to unit during the past several months, and each time his property, food, clothing, and hygiene are stolen by guards. He can't order from commissary because the guards will steal whatever he orders. Most importantly, guards are constantly harassing and attacking him in groups of two or more, trying to get him to fight them so they can give him another case. Fahim has been in adult prisons since he was 14 years old on a trumped-up attempted murder charge out of Gary, Indiana. He was released at the age of 32 in 2018 and reincarcerated on technical parole violations in 2019. He's now been denied parole three times since being reincarcerated, despite having completed at least a half dozen programs, including the Recovering While Incarcerated program, which is supposed to earn one a sentence modification. He's had serious health issues, including severe seizures and major back issues resulting from having fallen off a top bunk that he was illegally forced to sleep on and having a seizure several years ago at Wabash Valley CF. They ask, please call Westville CF and the IDOC central office and demand that Fahim's property be returned to him, that he be given the medical attention he needs, and that the harassment and attacks by guards cease immediately. You can call the IDOC central office at 317-232-5711, extension 0, extension 1. 
Up next, we have a piece by IU graduate student Kayan Tara about the death of Malik Ali Malik, who died after a police pursuit in Bloomington last spring. When speed surpassed 100 miles per hour in a car chase on April 17, 2021, a supervisor called off the chase of 39-year-old Malik Ali Malik. The Monroe County Sheriff's Office was attempting to arrest Malik on outstanding warrants issued by the Monroe Circus Court. However, moments after the chase was called off, a deputy who spotted Malik in a 2021 Kia Sportage began to pursue him at speeds of about 70 miles per hour on a 50-mile-per-hour two-lane highway. The speeding SUV stuck a tree head four seconds after veering off Indiana 45 onto Dinsmore Road in Bloomington, Indiana. The car burst into flames. It is likely Malik died instantly due to hypoxia, which is when there is a lack of oxygen to the lungs. This was caused by the flash fire that consumed Malik's vehicle upon impact. WFHB spoke with Malik's family on how they have been coping almost one year after the incident happened. So we weren't together, but I talked to him like 20 times a day. And obviously he's a, a consistent part of our life because we have the kids and he he was a really good guy i mean he was a good guy not saying he didn't make mistakes but he was a really good guy this is the voice of barbara the mother of malik's two biological children malik age 14 and Aliyah, age 11. malik was also father to beyonce barbara's 18 year old daughter from a previous relationship even though malik and her were no longer together Barbara noted that they were amicable co-parents. Losing Malik meant she no longer had that support for her children. Barbara says it's hard to watch the dashcam footage of the incident, especially once the car has blown up. Five minutes after a deputy reported in a radio dispatch that the car was on fire, it was then reported that the vehicle had exploded. Barbara was especially struck by the moment after the car caught fire and Officer Moxley still had his gun drawn for a few minutes before putting it away. Barbara and Beyonce felt it was obvious at that point that the person in the car either needed immediate help or had not made it. Somebody had approached Officer Moxley and said, there's no way he's alive in there. And he was like, oh, no, he's not. But his gun was still drawn. But he was like commenting on how, yeah, he could smell him. And he, you can smell it. Can you smell him? Beyonce, who adds that the footage was difficult to watch, contemplates whether race was a factor in the way the situation played out. No, unless they have that struggle, mm-hmm. like fear that they have, and people don't understand that. Not a single it is Black a- or African-American person commented on it. I think that if um, he was white and the such same situation happened... I don't happened, think they would have chased him. Not even that. I think that if they saw someone burning in a vehicle they would have at least attempted to you know get that oh you have a fire extinguisher can I see that like even if from a distance you have to do something I think way more would have been done but I just feel like to them he was dangerous he was scary I think he was expendable well we don't care about you and in our mind you're of no value to our community and therefore your life does not matter to us. Barbara notes that the police should not have continued to pursue Malik in a residential area where the crash ultimately took place. 
Beyonce was eager to clarify that they do not mean to defend Malik's decision to run from the police, but that the outcome should never have happened. I think a lot of people think that we, um, like, with how we feel about everything that happened, we're saying that he should have been running from the police. I don't think that he should have been running from the police. I wish he would have pulled over, obviously, but uh, given the fact that his car was on fire mm -hmm. and multiple police were out of their cars with their guns drawn, I almost am like, well, I can't even imagine what would have happened if right. he had pulled over. I feel like it could have maybe even ended up the same way. So, well, they it, clearly his life was expendable in their eyes, and um, not to us. Not to he a had lot a family, and you know he took very good care of his children. Not everybody does that. Almost a year after the incident, Beyonce still has a lot of unanswered questions. For me, it's like, why if they saw him? Um, outside of uh, the car wash place or they had been following him for however long why didn't they just get him then yeah. I don't care if you have to tase him shoot him like if he's such a dangerous felon uh, which is how they described him to my uh, papa um, why not just get him right then and there and um, also <laughs> um, when they got out with their guns drawn um, I just I wish they would have accepted the help um, from the neighbors with the fire extinguisher, because um, the fire, I mean, whether he was, uh, had passed or not by then, um, I just feel like a, a lot of people there said had the cops not been there, they would have stepped in. For Barbara, the grieving process couldn't begin for a while after Malik's passing, because she was the one who had to identify Malik's body, plan the funeral, and be strong for her children who had just lost their father. I'm the one who found the dental records, and so I had to have them identified, and then there has to be a service. It's just you can't really fall apart until you have to take care of the things that actually need to be taken care of, and I wasn't a legal wife. Barbara doesn't know that Malik can get justice in this particular circumstance. However, she hopes Malik's story prevents situations like this in the future. I mean, I don't know that he could get justice in this particular circumstance because his opportunity was for justice was kind of taken from him but being that things are the way they are right now I do think that they need to make sure that you know we're following procedures because they're put in into place for a reason generally they are safety protocols uh, to me it was more of an abuse of of the power that you have. You have a car, you have lights, you have a gun, and therefore you did something that you weren't supposed to do that cost someone their life. He may not have mattered to you, but he did matter to people. And you looked at him as basically expendable. When it comes to justice, what Beyonce wants people to remember about her stepfather is regarding accountability and humanity of each individual. If people are more held accountable and realize that, um, yes, at the time it was a chase and, you know, he was a criminal, but as soon as that car crashed, he was a human being. Yeah, I just want everyone to know that everyone's life matters. Despite his encounters with the law, Beyonce always felt protected and nurtured by Malik. Even though him and my mom weren't together, he made sure that, like, he stayed in our life and he still always checked in on my mom. So um, he was just really good to us. I feel like, yes... He made mistakes in his life, 
But his main goal was to make sure that we didn't make those mistakes. Barbara and Beyonce hope other people convicted of minor crimes can get the help that they need. While they don't know that Malik himself can get justice, they believe Malik's story might change the outcome for future situations like this. At the time of publication, a tort claim has been filed. This is a civil claim where a claimant states that they have suffered damages by the person who has committed an act. Due to this being in effect, the Monroe County Sheriff's Office has stated to WFHB they will not comment on the case until the situation is resolved. For WFHB, I am Kayantara. Leonard Peltier is an American Indian organizer who's been imprisoned for 46 years. Now 77, he's suffering a variety of illnesses exacerbated by his long imprisonment, including diabetes, partial blindness, and an aortic aneurysm. He recently was infected with COVID-19. A member of the American Indian Movement, Peltier participated in the communal defense of the Pine Ridge Reservation in 1975, which had been overrun with police and FBI agents, along with two government-backed paramilitaries. He participated in a shootout that led to the deaths of two FBI agents and another Native militant, but denies firing on the feds. He was found in Canada in 1976 and extradited based on false testimony. Today, he's the focus of a renewed effort to secure his release, with nine members of Congress signing on to a letter requesting clemency. This question of whether Peltier will die in prison currently hangs in the balance, so we're sharing this overview piece from the International Leonard Peltier Defense Committee. serving your time from the day you're arrested. I was arrested February 6, 1976. My release date is uh, 2041. I don't think I'm going to make it. Well, Leonard's case is important to those us in Congress because the Constitution is very important too. It's the bulwark of our civilization. And when we see something take place in the third branch, the, the judicial branch of the United States that was established by the Constitution, where we think that uh, something should be done over again, like a new trial, then we are very interested. Um, the loss of liberty unnecessarily by one individual American uh, is very important to all of us in Congress. There's clear evidence that he was innocent. The evidence was fabricated and distorted. And as you know, he was extradited from Canada on the strength of false and fabricated affidavits, which the government was finally admitted to say were false and fabricated. He was denied a fair trial. He had a different judge, different jury, back in Indian country, mysterious transfer of the case. And he had a judge who was totally anti-Indian and who made rulings which were totally different than the judge in Cedar Rapids had done. And I think that uh, militated for a, a conviction. So I think he was somewhat um, at a disadvantage compared to us in Cedar Rapids. I mean, we're talking about hundreds of agents working on the case, which is one of the problems. Uh, they stumble over themselves. There are too many agents working the case. There's too many agents doing too much stuff. They literally did stumble over each other's feet. Uh, they created so much paper that none of us as trial lawyers could keep track of it. That's part of the problem that we wound up in the end. 
Uh, I mean, there was stuff that we didn't even know existed. And that was part of the problem of working it as intensely as they did, is they created so much stuff that nobody could truly master it, and none of us did. Well, the trial was a long, hard trial, about five weeks. Uh, when we got all through with it, uh, we wound up with no eyewitnesses. There were no direct testimony to I saw Leonard Peltier finish off the agent. We had basically tried it on a kind of a combined hybrid theory. Our main theory obviously was that Leonard Peltier had gone down and personally executed both agents. I mean, there's no question that. That was our main theory. But we hadn't proved that, and we knew we hadn't proved it. And so we argued it to the jury quite simply as, ladies and gentlemen, this is what we think he did, but we know we didn't prove that, but, you know, we think we've convinced you that he did. You told the appeal judges in 1986, we can't prove who shot those agents. Well, again, you're talking semantics. No, what I'm talking about is a contradiction between two statements. If you're talking, if you're talking about, did we have an eyewitness? Did we prove by irrefutable evidence that he was the person that squeezed the trigger? We had never claimed that we could had proved it in that sense. But that's what you told the jury, and if I can quote from your closing argument, we proved that he went down to the bodies and executed these two young men at point-blank range. Were they allowed to put the FBI on trial as they did in Cedar Rapids? No. But they were not allowed to essentially put the FBI on trial to imply that the FBI had hired Christopher Columbus to come over and harass the Indians. Well, the prosecution changed and flip-flopped on who was the murderer. In the Fargo trial, it was all Leonard. He did the killing. He was the executioner. He had murdered the agents in cold blood with a high-powered AR-15. When it got to the appellate level, it was all changed because they knew of the significance of that teletype saying it couldn't have been Leonard's gun. And therefore, they changed it to an aiding and abetting theory, which was not the theory that went to the jury. And now they said that they didn't know who shot the agents, who killed the agents, but Leonard was with the group that did, and therefore he was an aider and a better and just as guilty. A complete change in theory necessitated by the revelation that it really couldn't have been Leonard's gun. The remainder of the prosecution's case against Leonard Peltier, taking away the ballistics, is simply that which was the same as Rubidoux Butler. There is no difference. They were acquitted. He was convicted because they fabricated that evidence by having an FBI agent, a ballistics expert, a firearm identification person, perjure himself despite his report to, and then hide the report so the perjury would not be apparent. But Leonard was not granted a new trial despite all these revelations because it was a political and not a legal decision. The FBI pressure has been intense in this case. They indicated that they were even going to drop the prosecution of one of the young men who was indicted but never tried, Jimmy Eagle, because they wanted to, as they put it, drop the full prosecutive, prosecutive weight of the federal government on Leonard Peltier. And they were told in the field, develop evidence that will tie Peltier in with this crime. And so uh, what really happened essentially was that the appellate courts, who know something is terribly wrong, that's why one of them wrote in the opinion, as I've never seen in any other appellate opinion, we are 
uncomfortable with our decision. So they had to maintain the argument that he was convicted for aiding and abetting. It was a legal necessity, but you can't have it both ways. And the fact is, they didn't have to tell us they don't know who shot the agents. The whole record shows they don't know who shot the agents. And they don't want anybody else to know because they want the world to believe that Leonard Paltier is guilty because they have staked their reputation on it. If we can't rise up and free him, what are we worth and what's the future of the country? And sadly, I have to comment as his lawyer that his health is not good. He needs surgery and he doesn't want it because when he first went in for this same surgery, he nearly died. He had to have six transfusions, unbelievable. Other problems. He's been in much too long. It's not that he ought to be out now. He should never have been in in the first place. Never. And every day is a new crime. Every dawn is a new crime. Every dusk is a new crime against the dignity of the Indian peoples. Because while Leonard Peltier is in prison, we all are. Commutation is a statement from the head of state that this person should be free. It's a political statement from the highest office of our government that this person should be free. And we have to demand that it happens. It has to happen this year. It can happen this year. If we organize and work, it will happen this year. It's imperative that we do it. The President of the United States can commute that sentence in the name of justice any moment he wants to. He has the power complete and absolute under the Constitution. It's imperative that we, you and I, secure the freedom of Leonard Peltier. I wonder what's wrong with the to be what's wrong to be an Indian. I wonder what. If it's so bad how come God put us on earth to be an Indian. After nineteen years I'm still not used to prison life. I mean, I still dream uh, and fantasize about being home. Find out more at whoisleonardpeltier.info. Thank you to Perilous Chronicle, Kayan, and everyone who contributed to the show. KiteLine is comprised entirely of volunteer efforts, so if you want to help us, please reach out via our email address or social media. This has been KiteLine. 
You can follow KiteLine Radio on all social media platforms. And if you want to financially support our work, you can become a supporter at patreon.com forward slash KiteLine Radio. Any funds raised beyond operating costs will be sent to folks on the inside. Please check out our new searchable website with hundreds of archived shows at kitelineradio.org. After a brief hiatus, we're happy to report that our prisoner call-in phone line is back. Folks on the inside or their outside friends and supporters can call 765-343-6236 to record a message to be played on the air. Please share this number widely and we'll try to answer and air all messages possible. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Thank you for listening.